Love Talk Radio. Hello, hello, hello. All right, so today um, I got an update for you on the coup in Venezuela. It's kind of crazy that I could even say those words, that there was a coup or an attempted coup in Venezuela, and uh, the U.S. has to talk about how, like, who, us, bro? We're not even behind that at all, bro. I don't know what you're talking about. So uh, I will dive into that. I'll lead with that. Then um, I will do my best to respond to a common criticism. There are many people on the Democratic team who uh, are not happy with the fact that I'm not voting for Joe Biden. Um, So I'm going to do my best to respond as uh, calmly and rationally as possible. Um, And people could agree or disagree with it, but, you know, I don't know. I hope that it would lead to, I don't know, people not strawmanning the position and maybe not using insulting descriptors. The dude, um, it was a caller into David Pakman's show, and he said I'm both, uh, I think, delusional and irresponsible. (laughs) And then he proceeded to not understand even, like, what my argument is. He just hears that I'm not voting for Biden and shuts down and fills in the blank with whatever he wants to in his own mind. So we'll talk about that. Um, Then I will get into... Uh, Joe Biden behind the scenes working on Republicans for Joe Biden. We have the amount of money that the richest eight men in the world are making during this COVID-19 crisis. And it really shows you how the economy is totally broken and um, it needs top-down reform. I mean, it's amazing that people can be making billions and billions of dollars as other people are having their lives destroyed. Um, 
And then later on in the show, we will get to Andrew Cuomo doing his COVID-19 press conferences. It's, you know, the best propaganda that anybody could ask for. And uh, we'll unmask the reality of that. And Americans are going hungry. And I'll show you some incredible pictures from food banks across the country. Really Great Depression-level stuff that we're seeing. So anyway, without further ado, let's get started. And um, after I take a sip of my big seltzer, bitch, we'll get... We'll kick it off with Venezuela. Okay. President Trump denied backing the botched coup in Venezuela. Um, And then he followed that up with some bragging and veiled threats. Take a look. Angeli, if I wanted to go into Venezuela, I wouldn't make a secret about it. I'd go right. in. I'd go in, and they would and do you, nothing about it. Yeah, it would, they you'd would probably send more people, right? I would. Yeah, I wouldn't send uh, a small little group. No, no, no. It would be called an army. Will you go and get them? An army. Well, I don't know too much about it. This was a rogue group that went in there. A lot of Venezuelans, I think people from other countries also, was a group of people that went in. Uh, I saw their pictures on a beach. It wasn't uh, led by uh, General George Washington, obviously. Uh, this was not a good attack. I think they were caught before they ever hit land. Uh, but I know, I know nothing about it. I'd say this. The government has nothing to do with it at all. And... Uh, you know, I have to find out what happened. But we don't need to, if we ever did anything with Venezuela, it wouldn't be that way. It would be a slightly different. It would be called an invasion. No, I didn't invade. I didn't invade. But if I did, it would go tremendously. It would go swimmingly. It would go amazing. <laughs> That's such a Trumpian response. Um, so here's my theory on this. I kind of outlined it the last time we spoke about this. I think that the U.S. government was behind it because I don't think something like a coup happens without the blessing of the U.S. government. Um, So I think the U.S. government was behind it, but there was a deal, and the deal was, hey, if you get caught, we're disowning it, and you're on your own, and we're going to say we're not behind it. But if they were to succeed, then Trump and his team would take the credit and say, "We, we have an amazing partnership it's an amazing partnership with an amazing private group. And that's the thing is that obviously Republicans love these sort of public-private partnerships. They love contracting with private companies. So you have this uh, company which did serve as personal security for Trump at some of his rallies. So there's absolutely a connection between Trump and his team and these people. And I think that that was part of the deal. And this way it's a win-win for Trump and his team. If the coup doesn't succeed, you know, they go, oh, I don't even know who this is. I've never even heard of these people. What does that even mean? There was a coup? I don't even know what coup means. Is coup, is that a new kind of car? Is that like a coupe? Is that like a two-door? So he gets to downplay it and swat it aside. But again, if they succeeded, do you really think that Trump would have been out there, like, not happy or, or saying, like, this was not approved by the United States? This is not acceptable? They're a sovereign country? No, they would have been like, it was amazing. It was amazing. We overthrew Maduro, and we put in the rightful president, Juan Guaido. And that's the other thing, is 
I think the claim claims from some of the people who were caught is that Juan Guaido was paying them like over $200 million to try to pull this off. And uh, where do you get that kind of money if there's not some sort of blessing of the U.S. government? I mean, over $200 million? $200 million. That's preposterous. And then also the funniest part of all this is that uh, they were caught by fishermen. (laughs) I can't get over that. They were caught by fishermen. Now, you know, if you think, well, because I thought this too. I'm like, really? That? So the U.S. government is somewhat involved in this, and they're that Bush League. They're that bad that they get caught by fishermen. But then you think back, and it's like, yeah, the U.S. has done many successful coups, but they've also messed them up too. <laughs> like, I mean, Bay of Pigs is a great example. And then you have people were calling this. I love this. I saw Max Blumenthal and I think Ben Norton and some others calling this. Bay of Piglets. (laughs) Oh, that's too perfect. That's a perfect name. I love it so much. But, you know, listen, I don't, it might seem like a crazy idea that the U.S. government would be behind this, but look at what we've been doing recently in the sense that Juan Guaido, this jackass right here, he's been pretending to be president of Venezuela for like over a year now. Literally been traveling around showing up to Western countries as, like, part of the Venezuelan delegation. And, like, everybody has agreed to pretend that this is the rightful leader of Venezuela. He's not in control in Venezuela. He's not running the country. He's not leading Venezuela. But all the Western governments have agreed to pretend. Like, yeah, yeah, no, sure, this is the guy right here. I don't know how many of you are old enough to remember this stuff about Iraq, but that would be, like, um, what's his name, Chalabi, the guy who we wanted to be, like, the dictator of Iraq after Saddam. It'd be like him traveling around just being like, yeah, I'm, I'm the leader of Iraq. I, if I'm not mistaken, and correct me if I'm wrong, but at least back then, they didn't try to say he was unless or until he actually became the leader of Iraq because he had no backing in the country. With Juan Guaido, they're all in. They're just like, yeah, we're just going to pretend like you're the leader. And then you have, you know, like, U.S. outlets report it uncritically. I got a president, uh, President Juan Guaido. That's not the president. <laughs> Again, agree or disagree with Maduro, like him, dislike him, irrelevant. He's not in control in the country. What are we doing here? So it's almost like it's funny to watch all this stuff because it really is. You want to talk about imperial decline? This is like sharp imperial dec- decline. I forget who said this. I think it was Matt Taibbi who said um, that Trump is like, Fredo Corleone in The Godfather. Trump is like Fredo Corleone. Uh, Obama was um, Michael Corleone, like Al Pacino's character, like kind of like the ruthless but competent manager. And then you have like the dumb one, Fredo, and Fredo is now in control of the United States. And they're trying harebrained silliness, like pretending this guy's the leader of a country when he's not. And so, of course, I wouldn't put it by them to pay some, you know, some cockamimi security group to try <laughs> to try to go and be heroes in Venezuela. And, you know, it's like I said this on the last segment about this, but it really does remind me of that show. Now, I didn't watch that Netflix show because I was reading about it beforehand. It just looks like rank propaganda. I mean, if you want to enjoy it and put aside the political implications of it. And, but, but they're trying to pretend in, I think, it is it Netflix or Amazon? I don't know. I think it's a Netflix show. But they're trying to pretend in that Jack Ryan show that, like, Venezuela is, like, really dangerous, and they might, like, nuke America, so we have to send 
some Americans there to save the day and stuff, and no big deal or anything, but they're just going to save the day from Venezuela doing terrorism against the United States. There is no Venezuelan terrorism against the United States. Let's stop pretending. But it's like these people watch one too many episodes of that show, and they were like, oh, yeah, we're going we're gonna to try that, bro. We're going to do that. We're going to go topple Maduro. How did you think this was going to unfold? Imagine. And then, like, the, the conversation about it is, is all strategic. Like, nobody says, and I almost, there was almost another segment I clipped out for you to make this point. They brought on a military advisor onto Fox News, and he's talking about what happened here. And he calls it, like, naive and silly and all these words. And it's like, well, hold on now. This isn't just, like, a strategic mistake. This isn't just an oopsie. This is, like, a war crime. It's a violation of a country's sovereignty. You can't just, like, willy-nilly consider, yeah, maybe we'll overthrow it from the outside, or maybe we won't. No. Imagine if somebody did it to us. See, that's the exercise that will just always blow your mind about how, how much hubris and arrogance there is in American empire, is that if you do the intellectual exercise of, like, the way that Trump is talking about Venezuela here, like, listen, if I wanted to overthrow him, I'd do an invasion, and I'd overthrow him, and it'd be over. It'd be a Rapsky, son. What are you talking about? Imagine other countries said that about us. Imagine they're like, yeah, the United States, rogue regime, terrorist regime, illegally invades countries, kills hundreds of thousands, if not millions of civilians. I mean... We could just overthrow them. We should just overthrow them. If I want to overthrow them, I just overthrow them. Just do an invasion. If people spoke about us that way, it'd be, oh, good sir. How dare you? But we talk, do it about them, and it's called Tuesday. So there's no, there's just a total disregard of international law. To get back to the Guaido thing, imagine if Nancy Pelosi traveled to other countries and she just pretended like she was the president of the United States. Nancy Pelosi travels to foreign countries and is introduced as, like, the president of the United States. How would Trump's people react to that? They'd be like, what are you doing? That's totally illegitimate. But somehow it's okay with Guaido. It's amazing. And, by the way, uh, you know, the other thing is the, they act like Trump loves to pretend like he's anti-war. We're still in Iraq. We're still in Afghanistan. We're still in all the places we were under Barack Obama in the Middle East. He's escalating more and more with Iran in like a really devastating way, sanctioning medicine from going into that country, which kills people, kills human beings. It, you know, I do think they were probably behind, to one extent or another, this coup attempt in Venezuela. Don't give me your nonsense. Because it's the same thing Obama used to do. We used to talk about, oh, we're, we're going to get out of Iraq. We're going to do it uh, relatively quickly. And then we just wouldn't get out. And it's like, well, so stop saying that you're going to do it because you're a liar. You're not doing it. Same thing with Trump in this respect. So... Just casually making threats <laughs> you know, on TV news, like, yeah, if I wanted to do it, I'd do it. I'd go in there and tap them and be over very quickly. It'd be over very quickly. He's done this before, talking about the Middle East, talking about, like, Afghanistan and Iraq. I could end this very quickly. I could just drop a nuclear weapon, but I don't want to kill hundreds of thousands of people. Oh, my God, dude, please, shut up. <laughs> just stop talking. But, um, yeah, this is, uh, this is Mr. Bean's attempt to do a coup. And they asked him if he's going to help these people. He didn't say anything. I would guess that that's probably another part of the deal. Like, maybe they're trying to work back channels to help these people to get them out of there. But, I mean, you get caught trying to overthrow a foreign country. How do you think the United States would respond if we caught coup plotters? If Trump caught somebody literally trying to overthrow him in a violent revolution with guns and everything, how would he react to that? I'm pretty sure those people would not be seeing the light of day again. So that might have been another part of the deal is, hey, if you get caught, man, you're on your own. <laughs> but... Um, it's just crazy. It's just crazy. And, by the way, there's very little discussion about this. The only discussion about this I saw was on Fox News, 
and they brought on a military, you know, expert to be like, well, this was naive and these weren't professionals and blah, 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 blah. There's no talk about this in any serious way as the big story that it is. Like, oh, my God, people just going around casually trying to do coups, probably backed by the United States. I mean, it should be a huge story, but no, we have this. Again, this is how you know the media. It's establishment media. It's elite media because they don't focus on the things that the establishment doesn't want them to focus on. And so, you know, they're, they're more likely to do their normal hack partisan coverage, totally uninteresting, than to cover real stories like an attempted coup of a sovereign nation. It's a shame. Okay. Next. Okay, this one is going to be a long segment. Because I have to respond to, I don't know, what I think are not fair attacks. Here we go. So there was a caller into David Pakman's show, um, and he was pretty angry at me, as well as Crystal Ball. And um, he thinks that we should definitely be voting for Biden. Now, The reason why I'm responding to this is because I've tried to be clear with my reasoning and upfront with it, and there's still some people, plenty of people, who are not really going to listen to the reasoning part of it, and they're just going to hear the part that they don't like, which is, oh, he's not voting for Biden. I disagree with him. And then what a lot of people tend to do is, if they don't want to hear the argument part and respond to the argument part, they just go, I'm going to fill in the blank and, and like ascribe motives to him as well as, you know, insult and shame. Hey, uh, you'll see, I'll, I get called irresponsible and I get called delusional among other things in this clip. Now, David Packman, um, you know, to his credit, he tries his best to be fair to myself and Crystal and give like, he basically tries to tell the guy like, hold on now, you're, you're not trying to look at it through their framework. Like David says, my framework is I'm, I I'm, want to do harm reduction, and I think Biden is basically a lesser evil, so that's why I'm going to vote for Biden. That's what he says. And then he says, you're just not conceiving of the fact that they perhaps have a different framework than you. So you're, you're judging their position based on your own framework. And that's not fair to their position. That's more or less what David says. Now, ultimately, I do think that even though David tries his best to be fair to myself and to Crystal, I do think there's a little bit of accidental misstating of my position. Like, in other words, he brings up accelerationist theory. That's what I call the backlash theory, which is the idea that things have to get so bad before they get good. And I'm actually not a believer in that theory. But I think he thinks that maybe I am. So he brings that up. But anyway... Enough of this setup. I'm going to play the clip for you, and I'm going to do my best to respond in detail. And I'm going to try to remain calm, even though I'm not going to lie. The first time I heard this, I was very triggered, because you tend to react that way when you think people are being unfair to your position. But anyway, let's take a look, and then I'll reply. I'm really getting sick of these delusional people out there. And some of the people on on other uh, progressive broadcasts and blogs, people... You know, like uh, Crystal Ball on 
on rising, and I know he's your friend, Kyle Polinsky on Secular Talk, who are just so anti-Joe Biden, mm. and they seem to be out for blood for him. And I really can't understand why. If this crisis right now that we are going through, it does not signal to people that Trump must be removed at all costs. Right. You are not only irresponsible, you are borderline selfish just and not caring about the lives that are being lost. So let's take that piece by piece. Let's take that piece by piece, Mike. So, first of all, I have no idea what Crystal and Kyle have been saying. A big, again, I, I just I just don't watch uh, shows. I, I work on my show, you know, 12 hours a day, and then I, I relax with some stuff that's not political content. But so let's let's sure. go through it in pieces. First of all, remove Trump at all costs. Not if you're going to replace him with something worse, right? So like I've made the calculation that Biden is better than Trump. That's why I am going to vote for Joe Biden to replace Trump. If you give me an option that's worse than Trump, then I say keep Trump because I want to do harm reduction. That part probably we agree on, right? Well, yeah, I mean, but the only realistic choice is that you're either going to... I agree. At this point in time, these are the options. It's Joe Biden or or it's Donald Trump. Now, why would Crystal... I'm taking your word that Crystal and Kyle are are very much anti-Trump, as you point out. My guess is if you ask them why they would say that it's because maybe they don't see Biden as better than Trump or they see Biden being elected as a path to something that doesn't fix the problem in the longer term. You'd have to ask them, right? I mean, you're asking me about stuff I haven't seen. My guess is if you ask them, they they would have a different perspective about and they would be able to articulate why they are as anti-Biden as you describe them to be. I've made my view clear, which is when I look at history – I don't see accelerationist theory as having worked and accelerationist perspectives as having worked. I see we have succeeded through getting people in power who will make responsible choices to the Supreme Court, which will then uphold the improvements that are made by the people that we elect. That's what I've seen in the progressive era, the New Deal era, and the civil rights era. So that's how I have established my framework. And I think what you're pointing to is somebody who has a different framework. I would say so, yes. I mean, but I just don't get the point. I mean, I I don't think I look at the I look at the landscape in the country, the way that this crisis is being handled, the way that the last three and a half years has gone, and I don't. I don't think this country can handle another four years of Donald Trump. I agree with you. I happen to agree with you. I mean, listen, Mike, so everybody has to figure out what works for them. As I said before, somebody doesn't want to vote Biden because they actually believe the country is better off with Biden losing and Trump getting four more years. Then they shouldn't vote Biden, right? But I just I want everybody to be clear. And there's a there's a contingent that I'm seeing, not Kyle and Crystal, but stuff like I'll look at my subreddit each day and I'll look at my Twitter mentions each day, where there are people who are doing an anti-Biden thing, but they're not actually saying they think Trump is better. So then it's like, well, what are you just posturing, or are you trying to get a certain reaction? Are you trying to get Joe to come? beg for your vote or whatnot. Like, I don't need any of that stuff. I'm, I'm mad. plenty busy. I'm you know just like, Biden you know better. I'm voting for Biden. They're mad that they didn't get their guy, and their guy was Bernie Sanders. And I'm a Bernie Sanders guy. Okay. And I understand that disappointment. Yeah. But, you know, sometimes when there's no great choice and 
got to do and take the best option available to you is, is all I'm trying to That's say. my perspective. And, you know, what, what I think is important to do is I don't see any benefit in going around and attacking the motives of Crystal and Kyle. Like, again, I'm going by what you're telling me, but if they've come to the conclusion that they're never voting Biden, and I, I'm not saying that that's what they're – I don't know if that's what they're doing, but if they did – my instinct is to assume, again, because I know them to some degree, I, I assume that they've come to that conclusion through some different framework than I have, rather than they don't care about death, like you said. I mean, clearly they both care about death. I, I know them well enough to know they care about people dying. I'm guessing they're working with a different framework. Right. I guess my point is, is that, I guess what I'm trying to say is that if, in my in my opinion, in my view, if you really care about the well-being of this country, and you yeah. and you were a Bernie Sanders supporter or an Elizabeth Warren supporter, and you know you're you're looking at this election and you're just gonna say, well, you know what, if I couldn't just get my guy, and if we can't have it all or nothing right now, then right. I don't really care what happens to the country. I'm gonna vote third party or not vote at all or or and do whatever. I, I think you're. I think you're extremely off base and extremely selfish and not really caring about a lot of the suffering that's going on with some of these people right now. Yeah, so Mike, it I sounds mean, like your frustration is that there are people who are coming to different conclusions than you, and you're frustrated by that because for you, the the, the, the conclusion you've come to is so obvious. Right. Yeah. I mean, look, I was going to vote for whoever the Democratic nominee was. That's just how I went into this whole, mm. you know, election cycle, which we're going, because I've seen what happens when you make irresponsible choices, and I just think they're being irresponsible. All right, so there's a lot I have to say in response to this. First of all, I want you to note a difference here. I've never voter-shamed anybody. Even when it comes to Trump voters, I don't voter-shame them Um, because I don't believe in voter-shaming because I think it's counterproductive to the whole point of trying to get people on your side in the first place. So I just want to note the irony of basically this person mad that I don't want to vote for Biden, and then he proceeds to do the exact same thing that would further exacerbate people in my position from voting for Biden. So in other words, you're creating more of the thing that you don't like. If you don't like it that people aren't voting for Biden, what you're doing is the last thing you should ever do to try to get people to vote Biden. Because Really, it's, it's shaming, and it's insulting, and it's not even understanding the argument and responding to it before you even understand the argument. So, you know, listen, he calls me, quote, delusional, irresponsible. I'll, I'm just going to put that to the side because those are, you know, like attacking my intelligence or attacking my character. I, I like to think that I've done enough for people who watch the show to understand that I'm always being honest and upfront with you, and you could disagree with my conclusions but, you know, to, to go in the gutter like that, I just think is ridiculous and unfair and speaks poorly of you. It says nothing about me. Um, so, and, and the other thing is, it's funny that people get so mad at me because I've made crystal clear time and time again that I'm actually not, I'm not trying to evangelize my position. So in other words, there's a difference between saying, wow, this sucks. I'm not going to vote Biden um, because he doesn't meet the standards. And not only am I not going to vote Biden, I'm going to try to convince you to not vote Biden. I'm going to try to go out there and, and make the argument that, in fact, this isn't just something I should do. I think this is something everybody should do. 
So let me go out there and say, you shouldn't vote Biden, and you shouldn't vote Biden, and you shouldn't vote Biden. It's, it's on you. People can make their own minds up. People can make their own decisions. And in the same way that I don't shame Trump voters, I'm not going to shame Biden voters because I don't believe in voter shaming. I think it's counterproductive. Um, so that's the first thing I want to say. Now, let's take the arguments one by one. One of the early points is basically this crisis, like what we're going through right now, like if this doesn't prove that you should you know, vote Biden, then I don't know what you're like, where are you? Are you not paying attention to what's happening? But I find that a very curious argument because what evidence is there that the response would be different and how would it be different? So, for example, the biggest problem with the response to this crisis has been the fact that we just took $5 trillion and fully implemented corporate socialism and handed the keys to the Treasury over to Steve Mnuchin, a Goldman Sachs lackey, and Steve Mnuchin gets to determine where the tax money goes, and the tax money is going to go to big corporations. So we, we did a total corporate bailout and gave crumbs to the people. Now, where's Joe Biden on that? Has Joe Biden been saying anything? No. In fact, if I had to guess, I think Joe Biden would have supported that 100%, because every other Democrat supported it 100%, and even Bernie Sanders supported it 100%. Now, I'm adult enough to call out the guy who I like. I like Bernie Sanders. That vote was dead wrong. That vote was dead wrong. That was a corporate heist, that bill. And it will be looked at in the same way that the Wall Street bailouts of the Great Recession are looked at. So you say, oh, this crisis shows we absolutely have to support, you know, Biden over Trump. And it's like, I don't think the response would be that different. Now, you can disagree with that, but you have to make the case. And you didn't make the case. You didn't say like, oh, here's a policy that Biden is pushing when it comes to this crisis that is just so good that that alone should swing you. I don't think Biden is prepared to handle this crisis. Trump has done a horrible job, and this show has called him out on that repeatedly, repeatedly, and will continue to do that. Trump has done a terrible job. So have the Democrats. The Democrats have as well. This idea that like, you know, this mythology of Biden as like a competent leader who would respond to a crisis like this, like, oh, the second that we hear that there's a pandemic coming out of China, uh, Biden leaps into action and he creates millions of N95 masks and he creates millions of ICU beds that we need and he, he stockpiles the antiviral drugs and we have the testing that we need. I don't believe that. Not even close. The guy can barely form a coherent sentence. And I'm supposed to just assume that like, oh, yeah, no, he's going to be, he's such, he's a much more competent leader in a crisis. Nonsense. Nonsense. I don't agree with you. And you don't have any evidence for the claim that you're making. So right off the bat, I think that's a terrible argument. Oh, is it Biden? If, if you don't uh, see how this crisis, like a lot of people are hurting in this crisis. So obviously we got to get rid of Trump. But the guy that you're replacing Trump with, there's zero evidence to say he would be responding to this crisis in a competent fashion. That's just not true. Okay, so the next point is, again, Pacman tries to be fair to both myself and Crystal and say, hey, they just don't agree with your framework. So let me explain exactly what my framework is, as I have a thousand times before, but I'm going to do it again for this segment. And hopefully, you know, if you can share this around if it reflects your views as well. Or, you know, people who want to straw man my position if they just want to listen for a little bit, maybe they'll understand the position better. And if you want to disagree after you hear it, fine. But understand it before you criticize it. So I do not believe in accelerationist theory. In fact, I'm a critic of accelerationist theory. 
Accelerationist theory, or as I call it, the backlash theory, is the idea that, hey, maybe it's better if Trump wins because then everything gets so bad that there's a stronger left-wing resurgence to combat him being bad, and then that leads to a rise of the left, and then we end up getting better policies in the long run because, you know, the left then takes over. And the left couldn't have risen up unless there was that evil that was there. I'm not a believer in that, particularly because I saw what happened under the George W. Bush years. In other words, when the Republicans go far right, you know what happens? They drag the Democrats to the right as well. It's not like, oh, you have somebody who's so bad in office that the Democrats then go, well, now we're going to go to the left to defeat you. That doesn't happen. So I don't believe in accelerationist theory or backlash theory because I don't think the evidence proves that it makes sense. My position is basic standards and principles. So in other words, I'm not, this guy says literally, like I would vote for whoever the Democrat is. Okay, but I wouldn't do that because I'm not voting. I don't vote based on party affiliation. I think that's mindless. I vote based on what are my policy preferences. So you could accuse it of being a litmus test. Fine, I'll own that. Yeah, I do have a litmus test. But I'd argue my litmus test is incredibly lenient. So in other words, I would need to be convinced that Biden would fight for at least one or two of my top five issues. Medicare for all, free college, living wage, ending the wars, and UBI. Now, of those, Biden pretends to be in favor of uh, living wage. I don't believe him. You want to know why I don't believe him? Because they didn't do Dickie McGee's acts on that front when he was vice president. When he was vice president, they didn't do anything to raise the minimum wage across the country. Um, And also, he just came to it recently, and it was, you know, it's like a side note. It's like a side point. I would be convinced if he had spoken about it a hell of a lot more. It's like, it's obvious that he's doing it after the fact, and and I don't think he will do anything on that front in office. So, he hasn't convinced me that he'll do any of those things. On the college front, he's got a stupid means-tested thing where, oh, over $125,000 doesn't apply to you. It's ridiculous. So of my top five issues, Medicare for all, free college, living wage, and the wars, UBI, I don't think he's going to do any of them, any of them. Now, normally, that's it. That's all I got to know. Okay, you're not going to do any of the things that I value the most. I'm out. But I made an exception because I'm just that kind of a guy. I'm just that lenient. And so what did I say? Okay, there's another way you can get my vote. Pick Bernie or Nina for VP. Now, even with Bernie or Nina for VP, I'm not convinced he would do any of the things that I want him to do. But if Bernie or Nina is VP, at least I know there's a voice in the room that's totally reasonable, that represents my values, that will nudge Biden in the right direction. And then maybe every now and then that would force him to do some of the things I like, some of the things I prefer, some of the things I believe in to my core. But, of course, he's not going to pick Bernie or Nina for VP. And then I made another exception. Another exception. I keep making exceptions to try to be kind to Biden. I keep making exceptions to say, okay, man, you're not going to do the things that I really want you to do to earn my vote. So, here, I'll loosen my standards a little bit. Now, there are a hell of a lot of people out there. It's funny. I get attacked as, like, the ultimate purity test guy. There are so many people out there who not only have purity tests, they have way stricter purity tests than me. So what was the, the final thing that Biden could have done to get my vote? Well, really, this one is not Biden's fault. It's Bernie Sanders' fault. Bernie Sanders has the support of 30 to 35 cent, 35% of the Democratic base. 
okay? That's leverage. That's leverage, son. Biden knows he needs at least some of those people. So when Bernie dropped out, if he went to Biden and said, listen, I need tangibles this time. I didn't get Dickie McGee's ax in 2016. So if you want me to support you and campaign for you, very simply, here's a list of 10 executive orders that you need to promise to do in the first 100 days. And you could have put a bunch of stuff on there, not even the things that I was alluding to before that are in my purity test, but things like legalizing marijuana, which Biden could do with an executive order. You just take the substance off the controlled substances list. That's it. He could do that through executive order. If Bernie had that on the list, if Bernie had a Buy American executive order, which says that, hey, we'll punish outsourcers, we'll cut off all federal contracts with people who, with companies that outsource jobs. That's another thing that Biden could have signed on to. Now, my guess is, and this is all speculation here, but my guess is if Bernie said, hey, man, you do these, I'm in. You don't do these, good luck in November, I'm out. I'm just going to sit out. I'm not going to say anything. I'm not going to endorse you. I'm not going to campaign for you. I'm just going to sit on the sidelines. My guess is Biden knows I need Bernie. So maybe he doesn't do all 10 of the executive orders. Maybe he says, I can't do these five, but I'll do these five. And then, boom, we have tangibles. Hey, in the first 100 days, I'm going to do five executive orders. One of those executive orders is legalizing marijuana. Hey, Kyle, who are you going to vote for? I mean, what do you want me to tell you? I think that's a super important thing, that if we legalize marijuana, not only do you increase freedom across the country, but also now we're talking about freeing nonviolent drug offenders, which is massively important. Would I vote for somebody who's going to free the nonviolent drug offenders and legalize marijuana, even though I have massive disagreements with him elsewhere? I, I would. I would. Now, so I have my standards. He didn't pass them at all. Then I loosened them to Bernie or Nina for VP. He's not going to do that. So then I loosened them again to, okay, Bernie, here's how you should have used your leverage. Bernie didn't do that, and Biden didn't give us any tangibles. So I'm out. So in other words, my argument, the reason I'm not voting Biden is this idea that I have standards and I have principles. And you might not like where those lead me. Too bad. Not your freaking principles. You have your own. And yours are, I'm going to vote blue no matter who. Not my words, your words. I'm going to vote for the Democratic president no matter who. I know it sounds like I'm strawmanning you, but you literally say that in the video with Pacman. So, you know, I don't agree with you. In reality, yes, I'm a registered Democrat because I live here in New York and we have closed primaries. So to vote in Democratic primaries, I have to register as a Democrat. But everybody knows I'm actually an independent. I'm an independent. Everybody knows that. So I don't agree with you. You got to get that through your mind. I don't agree with you. So for you, ah, delusional, irresponsible because he doesn't want to do the thing I want him to do. Okay, why can't a Trump supporter go out there and say, Kyle's delusional and irresponsible because he's not going to vote for Trump? And that mindset of like, now he doesn't say this to be fair to him, but there is a pervasive argument that like, oh, if you don't vote for Biden, then that's a vote for Trump. But I'm not voting for Trump either. So why can't the Trump people say, hey, if you don't vote for Trump, that's a vote for Biden? Why can't they say that? Well, you're more ideologically in agreement with Biden than you are in, in agreement with Trump. Well, actually, when it comes to the First Step Act, I agree with Trump on that. When it comes to pardoning Alice Johnson, I agree with Trump on that. When it comes to TPP, Trump's against it, Biden's for it. I agree with Trump on that. When it comes to um, North Korea, Biden said in one of the debates, we shouldn't talk to North Korea. We shouldn't try to make a peace deal. Whereas Trump was doing that. I agree more with Trump on North Korea than I agree with Biden. Now, granted, there are more issues where I agree with Biden. There are more of them. Not enough. Not enough. 
Joe Biden is much better when it comes to the courts. Absolutely. I'd take a centrist like Merrick Garland any day over a, a, a right winger, and Biden would very likely pick a centrist like Merrick Garland. On the Supreme Court, Joe Biden is better. Um, when it comes to the Paris Climate Agreement, Biden is better. When it comes to the Iran deal, Biden is better. I can name a bunch of issues where Joe Biden is better. I can also name a handful, admittedly fewer, where Trump is better. But my argument overall is they're both beyond the pale. Why? Because I think that these kinds of criticisms from this guy, I honestly believe that these people usually overstate how bad Trump is, and they understate how bad Biden is. Now, I just told you, that doesn't mean I think they're equally bad. I do think I, I have more agreement with Biden than I have with Trump. So in that respect, Biden is the lesser evil. But they're still both beyond the pale. And I think that the people who say Trump is a fascist, and they think he's like, do, you know, basically, we can't survive another four years of America with him. Yes! That's literally a point he made. I don't think this country could survive another four years. Disagree. Disagree. The country will survive four years with Trump. The country will survive four years with Joe Biden. But both of them would be objectively terrible. And in the case of Biden... Again, I think they understate how bad Biden is. Why? On so many core issues, he's against us. Me, at least. I can't speak for this guy. Joe Biden pushed for NAFTA. Joe Biden has repeatedly, uh, he voted for NAFTA. He repeatedly pushed for TPP. He's a supporter of the Iraq war. Something that's rarely talked about, but just as important, he supported the Graham-Leach-Bliley Act, which repealed Glass-Steagall, which is Wall Street deregulation that led to the crash in 2008. Okay on all the pivotal issues of his time, he was wrong, and he sided with the Republicans. So stop overstating how bad Trump is, the country's still going to exist in four years, and understating how bad Biden is, because it's annoying. I just don't agree with the people who are like, he's a fascist, he's a Nazi, the country's not going to exist in four years. You're hyperbolic, and you're ridiculous. And then they always revert, well, the kids in cages, what about the kids in cages? Biden and Obama built those cages. You want to know how I know? The original scandal with kids in cages, this was huge on Twitter. Everybody was sharing a picture of a poor kid in a cage at a border facility. Oh, my God, it's heartbreaking. It turns out the photo was from, like, 2014, during the Obama era. And then all of a sudden, can we blame Trump for it anyway? Now, Trump is bad. Trump's border policy is probably worse than Obama. But stop overstating how bad Trump is and understating how bad Obama is because they're both totally cool with kids in cages. So, um, and, and another point is, and I, I know Crystal probably believes this too, like, it's not our job to carry water for the Democrats. That's not my job. You might want that to be my job, but that's your opinion. That I view my job as much differently. I come out here and tell the truth and, and, and tell everybody what I think, and what I think is not what you think. So, uh, all right, final point I'll, I'll say here is, he says, like, oh, they're mad that they didn't get their guy, and that's why they're not voting for, um, for Biden. But that's actually not the reason, and I just explained the reason in detail. And if I had to sum it up in a little soundbitey way, it's very simple. Minimum standards and principles. And he doesn't meet my very, very lenient minimum standards and principles. That's it. 
It's very simple. Now, if he were to take all of this energy that he's directing at being mad at me, calling me delusional and irresponsible and, you know, insulting and shaming, if you were to take that energy and direct it towards Biden, and if everybody who is this mad at me and Crystal took this energy and put it towards Biden, you probably could get him to concede on some policies that would get us to actually vote for him. See, that's the thing I cannot get over. Like, why are you, why is anybody upset at me? I understand not agreeing with my position, but I'm not voter shaming you, no matter who you're voting for. I'm not evangelizing and trying to convert people to my position. All I'm saying is here are my minimum standards and he doesn't meet my minimum standards. That's it. How can anybody be like, oh, how dare you, sir? You want to be mad at anybody, be mad at Biden. Get Biden to move on some of these things. Get him to actually believe in and make the case for some of the bare minimum things I believe in. Push him to pick Nina Turner for VP or Bernie Sanders for VP. You know, like, all of this energy that's wasted on shaming the left and insulting the left and strawmanning the left. What a waste. You're doing the exact thing that's going to create more non-voters or third-party voters. I'm not saying that about me because I was already in this position through a very different line of reasoning. But there are some people who are just going to have that emotional reaction to be like, you know, I was on the fence, but screw this guy. Now I'm definitely not voting for Biden. So it's like what, they're, what you're doing is so counterproductive to your ultimate goal. It's just so counterproductive. You know, and by the way, there are ways to make reasonable, rational arguments for Joe Biden. Arguments that are much more powerful than the road that this guy decided to go down with shaming and insulting, calling delusional and irresponsible, not understanding why it is that I'm not even voting for Biden. And it's just like, what a waste of energy. What a waste of time. What a waste of an emotion. You should be mad at him. You should be mad at him. Because I'll tell you what, man, uh, my standards are so lenient that I would reckon the majority of my audience disagrees with me. I would reckon the majority are like, yeah, even if he meets your standards, dude's still a war criminal. And the final point is this, and this is one that I, I haven't made often enough, but I will begin to make more often, because I, I think it's actually one of the more powerful arguments for my position. I'm of the belief, and I had to think deeply about this, and it finally occurred to me, I had a light bulb moment, I was like, oh, that's why I struggle with this stuff so much. I'm of the belief that when you vote for somebody, and that person wins, to some extent, you own what they do. So, in other words, I voted for Obama in the 2008 primary and in the 2008 general election. Obama takes office. Obama, in his first term, stories start coming out towards the end of his first term. We got this drone assassination program. There's been a massive increase in that program since George W. Bush. And there's a 90% civilian death rate. So they're doing drone strikes very lenient, lax standards. They're doing it with not solid evidence, and they're killing innocent civilians. 90% civilian death rate. Now, I'm partly responsible for that because I voted for the guy who did it, okay? I cannot live with that on my conscience, that I supported a guy who's killing civilians. I can't live with that. I'm not okay with that. Now, Am I directly responsible for those civilian deaths? Of course not. Of course not. I'm not the drone operator. I'm not pressing the button. I'm not Obama who's given the okay to do the drones. I'm not directly responsible for it. 
but I'm definitely indirectly responsible for it. Definitely indirectly responsible because I voted for the guy. I supported the guy. I got him in the office, and then his actions are killing innocent civilians. I can't live with that. I'm not okay with that. So I know a vote for Trump is owning all of the death and destruction that he brings about in this world. It's an indirect owning of that. I know that voting for Biden is owning all of the terrible actions he does. And all of the, I don't think he's going to end the wars. I think he's going to increase the wars or at least keep them the same. So I own every single civilian death that he's responsible for if I vote for him and he wins. Again, not directly, but indirectly. But even indirectly, I can't have that. I'm not okay with that. It doesn't sit well on my conscience. And I realize I don't think a lot of other people think this way. I really don't. I, I think the overwhelming majority of people, they view like, okay, I'll vote for, you know, a lot of people do lesser evil voting. I'll just vote for whoever I think the lesser evil is. And then well, it's almost like whatever they do is what they do. And I'm not responsible for it. Well, I have a philosophy and a mindset and an outlook it has me as much more of an active participant. And if I support the person, then they do horrendously evil things and kill civilians. I'm indirectly responsible for that. And I literally cannot live with that on my conscience. I feel gross. I feel terrible. And that's why in 2012, 2012, 2012, I voted for Jill Stein. 2008, in the primary and the general, was Obama. By 2012, it was Jill Stein. And you can actually go back. There was, you know, on, on the radio show. I'm not sure if this was on YouTube, but on the radio show, I explained, like, the thing I couldn't get over is the drone strikes. And I can't live with that on my conscience because I'd be supporting indirectly those drone strikes. So I explained that even back then in 2012. So that's another reason why it's so, it would be such a struggle for me to support him. But even given that, I've said, I've explained my standards. I've explained, you know, what he would have to do. And I would still stick by that. But it, understand that there are people out there who own what they do a lot more than a lot of these lesser evil voters own what they do. And so you might not agree with that philosophy, you might not agree with that outlook, but that is my outlook. So if, if somebody wants to disagree with me, I have no problem with that whatsoever. But all I ask is don't fill in the blank with what you want to be what I believe. So don't build up a straw man as to why I'm doing what I'm doing, and then you knock down that straw man. Because that's silly. Like, what, what's the point of that? Does it feel good? Makes you feel good? To, to wag your finger? Oh, oh, Kyle's not doing what I want him to do. Saying blah, blah, blah. It's just so sad. It's just so ridiculous. So anyway, that's my breakdown. Hope it made sense to some of you. Again, I'm not evangelizing. I'm not asking you to do what I'm going to do. Um, but, you know, at least you know I'm, I wouldn't shame you for what you do. Me, this is my position, and um, agree or disagree with it. Just don't make up stuff about it. All right, let me do one more, then we got to take a break. That was a long segment. This is actually linked to the other segment. So Glenn Greenwald tweeted this the other day. Um, the reason I'm sharing it with you is because I think this perfectly demonstrates and highlights why it is that so many people on the left are just so tired and so beaten down and have tapped out. They've tapped out of the system because they're like, this doesn't represent me at all. 
So what you're going to see here is Obama talking to the Wall Street Journal, and he ended up, like, accidentally exposing everything that's wrong with the modern-day Democratic Party and why so many of us are frustrated. In my conversations with the Republicans, I actually think the divide is not that one. So what we just have to do is find a pathway where uh, Republicans in the House in particular feel comfortable enough about process that they can go ahead and meet us. Uh, This, by the way, Jerry, I think is a good example of something that's been striking me about our our politics for a while. Uh, When you go to other countries, uh, the political divisions are so much more stark and wider. Here in America, the difference between Democrats and Republicans, uh, we're fighting inside the 40-yard line. Maybe it's... You fooled most people maybe, on that in the last few months, I said. No, no, but, but well, no, no, no. The, the, uh, I, I would distinguish between the, the rhetoric and the tactics yeah. versus the ideological differences. I mean, in most countries, you've got, you know, people call me a socialist sometimes, but no, you've you got to meet real socialists. <laughs> you'll, you'll have a sense of what a, what a socialist is. Um, you know, the, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm talking about lowering the corporate tax rate. My health care reform is based on the, 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 the private marketplace. Uh, stock market's looking pretty good last time I checked. Uh, and, you know, it is true that I'm concerned about uh, growing inequality in our system, uh, but nobody questions uh, the efficacy of uh, uh, market economies in terms of producing wealth and, and uh, innovation uh, and keeping us competitive. Uh, my, my simple point is this. If we can get beyond um, the tactical advantages that parties perceive, in painting folks as extreme and uh, uh, trying to keep an eye always on the next election. And for a while at least, just focus on governing, then there is probably 70% overlap uh, on a whole range of issues. A lot of Republicans want to get infrastructure done, just like I do. A lot of them believe in basic research just like I do. A lot of them want to reform entitlements uh, to make sure that they're affordable for the next generation. So do I. A lot of them say they want to reform our tax system. So do I. There are going to be differences on the details. Uh, And those details matter. And I'll fight very hard for them. But uh, we shouldn't uh, think that somehow uh, the reason we've got these problems is because uh, uh, our policy differences are so great. That perfectly describes the neoliberal corporate Democratic Party. Perfectly. There's another famous video of Obama from earlier on. This is from 2013, but there's a video of him, I believe in his first term, if I'm not mistaken, where he says, like, hey, if you look at my policies, they're basically like moderate Republican policies from a couple decades ago. It's quite an admission. Who, me? I'm, I'm like a moderate Republican. And you heard him right there. Let's go through some of what he said. The, the one part that really I was just like, wow. He says there's a 70% overlap with him and Republicans. So in other words, there's campaigning Obama. And when I'm on the campaign trail, I'm going to be a fire breather. I'm going to sound populist. 
But then there's governing Obama. And when I'm governing, see, this is when we get to the, the part where it's all adults in the room. And when they're all adults in the room, we have a 70% overlap. And we're, we'll work together. And then he goes on to list things. Now, notice something. He, makes, he has this list of things that he's cool with working on. All of them, it's him agreeing to Republican priorities. That's so telling, because that's exactly what the left is frustrated about, is that you go down this list and it's like lowering the corporate tax rate. My health care reform uh, helped the private market. The stock market is rising. Let's reform Social Security. Like all of these things, all of them are like, hey, I'm going to meet the Republicans on their terms. And that's the problem, because it's never like, oh, like when you had Bernie Sanders have bipartisan agreements with like Ron Paul, it's like, hey, let's agree to end the drug war. So Ron Paul is staying true to his libertarian principles. Um, Bernie's staying true to his leftist principles. Let's free nonviolent drug offenders. Let's increase freedom and legalize marijuana. There's agreement there where they're meeting on their own terms, but it's not Bernie compromising his values. It's not the Democrat, or Bernie's an independent. It's not the lefty compromising their values. In the case of, um, in the case of Obama, perhaps he's not compromising his values either, but then he's just not what a lot of people thought he was. He's not a lefty, and he's not. Again, he might campaign as one from time to time, but when he's actually governing, he's like, yeah, here's a list of things I agree with the right on, and I think they're – there's 70% overlap with the Republicans, 70%. And then he says, well, other, big, other countries have bigger divisions. So, you know, us, we're, we're arguing within the 40-yard line. So he's saying that, like, hey, in European countries, you have, like, social Democrats and you have communists, and they really fight it out, and there's total disagreement. Here in the U.S., the disagreements between the neoliberal corporate Democrats and the establishment Republicans – they're very minimal. So, listen, but this, is, this perfectly like, highlights a problem I've talked about time and time again, and others have, which is the problem is not that we don't have bipartisanship. It's that we have too much bipartisanship. But the bipartisan agreement is always like, let's uh, you know, reduce regulations on Wall Street. Let's cut taxes for the rich. Let's continue our endless wars. That's where there's bipartisan agreement. The overwhelming majority of the time, if Democrats and Republicans are agreeing, it's to screw you and help their donors. And in the case of Obama, like, you know, he got pressure from the right, the Republican Party, from um, the media, and also his, the corporate money he's taken, I'm sure, impacted his ideology. So Obama was just not a lefty. He was just, he was a neoliberal corporatist, and he was comfortable with that, and he viewed himself as a technocratic manager. Technocratic manager. Yes, I'm, I'm the adult in the room. I'm the manager. I'll be competent. But the priorities were not Medicare for all, not a living wage, not ending the wars, not a Green New Deal. When Jill Stein ran on that in 2012, she was laughed out of the room by Democrats. So I think this perfectly highlights everything that's wrong with the neoliberal corporate Democrats. But notice how comfortable he is talking about it in, when he's around the Wall Street Journal and the elite media. He's like, well, you guys got me pinned as like this outsider populist. I'm not that. I promise you. We know, Obama, we know. And that's why people like me and many of my audience, we just feel, well, the Democratic Party is not for us. What do I want to tell you? I don't agree with you, and you don't agree with me. So I don't know why there's this badgering that goes on about, oh, it's blue no matter who, vote for our candidates. Why? 
we don't agree. <laughs> I mean, if you want to do a comprehensive analysis and break it down issue for issue, yes, we'd probably agree more with Democrats because there's much more overlap on the social issues. Um, and then every now and then on the economic stuff, they throw you a bone and they do something decent like, you know, Obama slightly raised taxes on the richest. Okay, good. So, yeah, you could say there's maybe a little bit more agreement with the Democrats and that there's, you know, it, they are a lesser evil in some respects. But again, it goes back to my original point, which is what are your minimum standards? What does it take for you to go out there to actually cast a vote, to actually get involved? And for me, it's a hell of a lot more than just like, hey, this person agrees with me on abortion. <laughs> like, I need more than that. That's not enough. That's not good enough. Oh, he'll stop, he or she will stop the Supreme Court from going, you know, to some idiot far right person. Okay, but who are they going to pick? You know, it's always like some silly centrist. Yeah, the centrist is better than the far right person, but this is still not enough. You got you to gotta go further. It's, there's got to be some, like, again, if you can't pass my lenient litmus test, that's on you, man, because I think I'm very reasonable with how lenient I've made my purity test. And these guys still don't pass it. And that really is something else. Okay. All right, let me take a break. When we come back, um, we got Republicans for Biden. That's an interesting story. You're not going to want to miss it. Stay right there. We'll be back with that and much more.
All right, I'm back, bitch. I am back, bitch. Okay. There's, um... It's just, it's so frustrating. It's so frustrating because, like, people love to, like, argue with you about a voting thing. And it's like, what, is, what does that even mean? Like, voting is a choice. Like, you have a personal choice as to what to do. And notice how people are so insistent on trying to change your mind when it comes to voting preferences. But they don't – there's no, like, real arguments made. It's just, like, character assassination and insults and shaming and, like, here's what you should do and finger-wagging. And it's like, why? Why are you doing that? I, I haven't – I haven't done a single segment advocating for other people to do what I'm going to do, which is not vote for Biden. Um, I'm just defending myself from, like, absurd claims against me. You know, like, it would be one thing if I was out there evangelizing, telling everybody they should do what I'm doing. I'm not doing that. I'm just saying don't attack me with your, you know, ridiculous lines of attack that are not substantive. Anyway, all right. There's a lot to get on to. Um, Let's talk about Republicans for Biden. Joe Biden is working on something behind the scenes that I want to talk to everybody about. This is from the Daily Beast. They say, Biden campaign is secretly building a Republican group. You don't want something like this out on the street before it needs to be, said one GOP operative. It just makes things, it just makes it much harder to do. So um, when you read the article, they list the names that are, uh, that could potentially be part of this. One of them is Jeff Flake, famous anti-Trump senator from Arizona. Um, He, of course, is not, in the Senate anymore because he knew he would get obliterated if he ran again because Trump is very popular within the Republican Party and he was standing up against Trump from within the Republican Party. Um, now, I need to be clear on that front. He wasn't standing up for him, you know, and saying, like, Trump, Mr. Trump, stop bombing all these countries overseas. No, it was all, like, tonal stuff, and he's so uncivil, and he's so, you know, not polite, and he has no decorum. This was the kind of stuff that Jeff Flake was concerned about. Um, Bill Crystal is another one who's named this guy right here, famous neocon, uh, Michael Steele, former RNC head, um, who's actually a very nice guy. I met him at Politicon, really nice guy. I mean, I disagree with him on virtually everything, but, uh, very, you know, kind person to talk to. By the way, this is why I don't like meeting <laughs> these people because it's like, I, I want to have that comfortable distance where I can be objective about them as opposed to you get to know them on a personal level, and it's like, oh, they're actually a really nice guy. And then it's like, ah, now it's harder to criticize them. So that's why, I believe me, the times I've gone to Politicon, I've tried my best to, like, let me hide in a corner and not talk to anybody. Uh, but Michael Steele is a very nice guy. Anyway, uh, and then also longtime operative Steve Schmidt. He's, uh, you know, the McCain operative, McCain staffer who got us, Sarah Palin. So, and now he's on MSNBC, and he plays the role of anti-Trump Republican. So, so here's the thing about this, Ben. Am I mad that Joe Biden is building a, you know, a Republican group? 
No, actually, I'm not at all. Um, I think the whole point of an election is to win the election, so you try to get as much support as you could possibly get from everybody. You reach out to everybody. Um, In the case of Biden, the issue here is not that he's reaching out to Republicans. You know, that's fine. The issue here is that he's reaching out to them on their terms, and the reason why people like Bill Kristol support Biden is because they know he's going to continue the wars. So Jeff Flake probably likes uh, Biden because Biden is going to be more polite and play the, you know, the fakeness game better than Trump does. So that's probably why Flake likes him. Um, in the case of Bill Kristol, you know, it's just, oh, I don't think Biden will stop our wars. He'll continue them. And that's what Bill Kristol cares about. So it's like, sure, I'll support the Democrat that will continue the wars. Trump will continue the wars, too. But um, Biden will as well. And obviously, Kristol's uh, anti-Trump for similar reasons to Flake. And then you have Steve Schmidt, same thing, anti-Trump Republican. So in other words, it's not like it's not like Biden is setting up this Republicans for Biden group. And the idea is, I'm going to reach out to you to materially improve your life if you're like a working person, for example. You know, there are plenty of working people who are Republican. Okay, well, I, a Democrat, can represent you. I will fight for you. I'll fight for your wages. I'll fight for your health care. That's not what he's doing. What he's doing is he's reaching out to this contingent of voters, which isn't even a real contingent. There are very, very, very few anti-Trump Republicans. They're a creation of elitist media. I'm serious about that. You know, guys, Trump, depending on what poll you look at, has anywhere between 80 and 90 percent approval rating within his own party. So, I mean, this is like, you know... They're, they love them. They love them. It's like trying to, in the FDR era, you know, get Democrats to leave FDR. It's like I, slim picking, son. So he's reaching out to the exact kind of Republicans that it doesn't make sense to reach out to. And he's reaching out to them on their terms. And he's doing it before there was any unifying of the left. And that's a huge problem. It's like politics 101 is don't abandon your base. And there's a way to not abandon your base while also getting the support of independents and disaffected Republicans. You could absolutely do that. There's a false dichotomy when people say, oh, you have to pick. But the way to do that is with working class politics appealing to everybody to materially improve their lives, like Bernie Sanders. So Bernie's message, the same message that applies to the base can apply and get the Republicans on his side and get independents on his side. But this is not what Biden is doing. Biden is, it's all the elite class. It's all the never Trump Republicans who still have every single terrible policy belief that they had before. And Biden is going to meet them doing those policies. So Biden is very likely to continue the Wall Street deregulation, very likely to not touch the tax code for the rich and leave it as is. Um, and very likely to continue the wars. And I think that those are the main things for the anti-Trump Republicans. Like, you know, keep the market deregulated, keep my taxes low, and keep the wars going, and then I'm with you. And that's where Biden is going to meet these people, which is why this is nonsense, and why this is terrible, and why this is spitting in the eye of the base. Whereas in the case of somebody like Bernie, he could reach out to the Democratic base by fighting for a living wage and Medicare for all. And that same message could apply to disaffected Republicans, working class people, because they lost their health care. 
and their wages are low. So there's a difference in how you reach out and on what terms you're reaching out and who exactly you're trying to get. I'd much rather have somebody get a former Republican, a two-times Obama voter who flipped to Trump and now flips back to the Democrats because they feel like, oh, you know, the Democrats are going to fight on trade better and I don't want my job outsourced. That I would like a lot more than, hey, Bill Kristol, I'll keep the wars going, so let me, let me reach out to you. Let's set up a group that has you in it. So, yeah, this, I mean, this is classic Joe Biden stuff. He really does love reaching out and working with Republicans, but it's the elitist Republicans. It's not the regular run-of-the-mill average Joe working class guy. It's like, you know, the people who we can work with on NAFTA and TPP and outsourcing deals and wars and bank deregulation. And that's the problem here. And by the way, this is what Joe Biden's record shows. It's what it shows, and it's why so many lefties have a serious issue with voting for him and can't support him, is because they know that whenever there was a consequential, pivotal decision in his career, he sided with the right. And uh, he is corporate to his core. So, you know, in principle, I have nothing, there's nothing wrong with reaching out to Republicans, reaching out to independents, reaching out to everybody who's gettable. There's nothing wrong with that. That's what you should do as a politician. But how you do it matters. The details matter. Um, And in the case of Biden, he's, of course, going to do it in the exact wrong way to, uh, you know, meet the elitists on their turf, not meet working class people on theirs. Okay, next. Okay, this next one is freaking crazy and it's going to blow your mind. Bernie Sanders' policy advisor is a guy by the name of Warren Gunnels. And um, he does a great job and his Twitter account is fire. I suggest you check it out uh, whenever you get the chance. But Warren really managed to sum up, without even trying here, he managed to sum up everything that's wrong with the economy. So this tweet is based on reporting. It was either from Fortune magazine or Forbes magazine. I get those two confused sometimes. Uh, But here's what he says. In the past day, in the past day, the eight richest men in the U.S. saw their wealth go up by $6.2 billion. Oh, my God. Mark Zuckerberg, one. $1.08 $1.08 billion. Larry Page, $956 million. Bill Gates, $931 million. Sergey Brin, $919 million. Jeff Bezos, $907 million. Larry Ellison, $634 million. Warren Buffett, $429 million. Steve Ballmer, $353 million. Combined wealth, um, combined wealth $653.8 billion. Jesus. And this all happened while 33 million people lost their jobs. So this is our new reality. Um, One of the most amazing things to watch recently has been now the total disconnection, the total divorce of how your average person is doing, how the economy is doing, and how the stock market is doing. You know, the stock market had its best day or best week on record at the same time that we got the worst jobs report on record. Let me repeat that. The stock market was doing phenomenally well 
at the exact same time we got the news about jobs in this country being eliminated at a historic pace. Where I mean, we're shedding jobs left and right. I told you guys, the old record was losing like 680, 640 or 680,000 jobs in a week during the 2008 subprime mortgage crisis and Great Recession. Now we're talking about every week it's 3 million more. The peak was 6 million, now we're shedding 3 million per week. And some people are like, oh, that's good, because it's not the peak of the 6 million. What? So we have 30, uh, 33 million people who just lost their jobs. 33 million. And actually, if I'm not mistaken, this tweet's a few days old. I think we're over 40 now. I think we're over 40. And, you know, guys, it probably undercounts it, too. They're saying the official unemployment rate is like 14.7% or thereabouts, where the U6 unemployment rate, which is like closer to the actual unemployment rate, is like about 23%, 22-point-something percent. Okay, this is, guys, we're getting into Great Depression territory. Great Depression was like 24% or 24.9%, something along those lines. This is where we're at. This is where we're at. And again, at the same time that this is happening, that your average person is being absolutely obliterated, the stock market is soaring, and billionaires are making much more money. Much more money. They never lose. You always lose. So, you know, listen, one of the reasons why this is happening, it's not just normal market forces, but it's the bailout packages. And what the Fed is doing, too, the Fed basically let the stock market know, let, you know, the fat cats and the big wigs and the people on Wall Street know, listen, we'll spend whatever the hell we got to spend to make sure that this doesn't go down. So we fully implemented corporate socialism. Remember, we covered the story a while ago. They were pumping a trillion dollars a day in liquidity, the Fed was, into the market. What? So, in other words, we've fully implemented corporate socialism. Socialism for the corporation, socialism for the rich. They can't lose no matter what. And for you, rugged individualism and capitalism. You get crumbs. You got the $1,200 one-time check. But that's it. Then you're on your own. And so you see, even the, the bill is supposed to, oh, let's help the small businesses. It, the, a lot of the aid did not get to the small businesses. A lot of the aid did not. About 40% of them could go bankrupt in the next six months. That's another story we covered on the show. So there's a total decoupling now. And our transition to corporate socialism is complete. Our transition to corporatism is complete. They can't lose. Privatize the profits, socialize the losses. When times are good, they reap the rewards and the workers get screwed. When times are bad, the workers have to bail them out. Taxpayers bailed them out. So you get hosed either way. I mean, what we're seeing here is really incredible. Now, that's not to say there are fixes, because there are fixes. Simple policy solutions, man. Very simple policy solutions. So if Bernie's wealth tax was in place, this is what Warren Gunnell says. If Bernie's wealth tax was in place from 1982 to 2018, how much extra would these men have paid? Bezos would have paid $117 billion dollars. Gates, $87.1 billion. Buffett, $80.1 billion. Ellison, $49.9 billion. Balmer, $34.8 billion. Page, $34.3 billion. Brin, $33.4 billion. Zuckerberg, $32.4 billion. And they'd still be worth $144 billion. Do you understand that? Even with, the wealth, with, a, with a wealth tax, these guys are all billionaires. But they would pay a pretty sizable chunk to the federal government 
and then imagine what we could have used that money for. Imagine. We don't have Medicare for all. We don't have free college. We don't have an infrastructure deal or a Green New Deal. Imagine, think about what that money could be used for. Think about how that money could be used to help regular people. End homelessness, that's another thing that we could probably do, just with something like a wealth tax. Instead, we don't have that. We've fully bailed out the corporations and have implemented corporate socialism. Workers are struggling. Millions of people are losing their jobs all the time. And Washington is... Did billionaires get billions more dollars as the rest of the economy is imploding? <laughs> if you don't, if this doesn't wake you up to see the need for radical change, I don't know what will. I mean, the reforms that I'm talking about are so mild and, and so centrist and so moderate. When I talk about a living wage and ending the wars and using that money for an infrastructure deal... When I talk about Medicare for all and free college, hazard pay for frontline workers, universal basic income, this is all like super moderate stuff. And now people are waking up to that fact when you look at the corporate heist that's going on right in front of our eyes. This was a shakedown. This was the rich and the corporations looting the treasury. And we live in a system where the billionaires can make billions more dollars as everybody else is getting left behind. Guys, 78% of Americans live paycheck to paycheck. And that was before the crisis. Imagine what's going on now as billionaires make billions more dollars. Listen, I'll scream it from the rooftops loud and proud. I am in favor of redistribution of wealth, and you should be too. Any reasonable person that looks at this set of facts goes, oh, well, redistribution is obviously necessary. The details matter, and we can debate where that line is and what makes sense and what doesn't, but redistribution is the duh position, and this proves it beyond any reasonable doubt. Okay, next. With the country plunging into a depression, that's what's happening right now, uh, you would expect Washington to understand, to one extent or another, the gravity of this situation. But they really don't. They really don't because they're disconnected. They're in their ivory tower. They see the numbers on the screen like, oh, my God, unemployment is rising very fast. But they don't they more directly feel what's happening with the stock market, which is why the Fed is like, we'll just prop up the stock market no matter what. We'll pump a trillion dollars of liquidity a day into the marketplace, anything to keep the market afloat, because the market represents the rich and the corporations, the economy and the unemployment rate. I mean, that is a much better indicator of how your average person is doing. And it's not just the economy. It's also wages, which is super important. So you would think they would say, oh, my God, what's going on here? We better address this, and we better address this quickly. We need UBI. We need hazard pay. we got to go. We need to pay for everybody's health care. Not only are they not saying that, their policy prescriptions are basically the exact opposite. So here's Trump. This is his new COVID bailout idea.
And in fact, they say what we're doing with the PPP, with you know all of the things that we're doing, is is great. One thing we could do is a payroll tax cut. That seems to bother the Democrats. One thing with a payroll tax cut, though, it's over a little bit longer period of time. But a payroll tax cut is something that some people that are very smart, I'm one of those people that like it because I think it's really sustainable. I think it's uh, it will sustain it. But that's one thing that uh, a lot of people would like to see. Mr. President, you were with some Another thing they'd like to see is a capital gains tax cut, meaning no capital gains. Some Republicans are it's true, true, hardline Republicans around the table. Not all of them. Some people might say, Louie might say, forget it. But uh, some people would say that a capital gains stoppage, uh, cutting capital gains, getting rid of capital gains tax, they've said that for many years, would be a great thing. These ideas are insane. <laughs> and they're really, they're more of a Trojan horse. This is just to help the rich and screw regular people. They want to, the payroll tax cut, the whole purpose of that is to gut entitlements. That's the whole point. And payroll tax cut. The problem is that people lost their jobs. We got at least 33 million people unemployed. You're talking about a payroll tax cut. What about people that have no job talking about payroll tax cut? Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Capital gains tax cut, that's even more insane. Guys, do you know what the capital gains tax is? That's when you invest in the stock market and, you know, some companies pay dividends. So, you know, you get a check every month or so, depending on, you know, how the company does. So capital gains tax is the income that you make from investments. So a guy like Mitt Romney, I remember this from 2012, is a great example when he was running for president. He made, I think it was like $14 million dollars. Um, just from investments, just from the money he had in the marketplace. And his tax rate was like 14% or something like that. It was pretty low. And it was a scandal because it was like, holy crap, this guy's making $14 million from doing nothing, from sitting on his couch all day. His money makes money. He doesn't have to make money. His money makes money. It's investments. And he's only paying 14%. Like, if you work for a living... If you're a construction guy and make 80 grand, or if you're a doctor and make 120 grand, or whatever it might be, you're paying a higher tax rate than Mitt Romney, and he just made 14 million from sitting on his butt. His money made money. It's investment money. So the capital gains rate is how much you tax investment earnings, and you know I, that should be linked to what it is for for working. I think, you know, at least if anything, you tax it more. But so Trump already cut that rate. But now they're saying as a response to COVID, as part of the next COVID bailout package, let's either cut or eliminate the capital gains tax. You're worried about investors. You're worried about investors. You're wor worried about the 1% and the Wall Street class as 33 million people at least just lost their jobs. 33 million. 33 million. The unemployment rate is in Great Depression territory. The fake number is 14.7%. The real number is almost 23%. The Great Depression was 24 or 25%. We're almost already there, guys. We're almost already there. This is, we've never seen anything like this in our lifetimes. None of us. 
unless you live through the Great Depression. So, this, and he's talking about a capital gains tax cut. So the rich shouldn't get taxed on the money they make in the market. You're talking about investors as workers are obliterated in this country. 78% of Americans were living paycheck to paycheck before the crisis. We had, what was it, like 25 million Americans, 25 to 28 million Americans who didn't have health insurance before this crisis and now increase that by tens of millions? And you're talking about a payroll tax cut. What you should be talking about is hazard pay. What you should be talking about is UBI. They're so out of touch. They're so out of touch. I couldn't believe when I saw this clip. He's talking about cutting taxes for the wealthy. Again, the 2017 GOP tax cut, 83% of the benefits of that bill went to the top 1%. They already cut taxes massively for the wealthy. Now, in response to COVID, they're like, how about we do that more? Let's cut taxes for the rich more. These are the ideas that are being thrown around. The other thing is, and this broke just yesterday, Art Laffer, discredited economist, wrong about everything. He's got the ear of the Trump administration. And he's like, this is a great time. Hey, man, look, and now it's out debt and the deficit, see? Oh, my God, it increased because of these bailouts that we're doing. By the way, again, that was all to give money to the wealthy. That was all corporate bailouts. People just got crumbs. He's like, we got to address uh, the debt and the deficit. So let's cut entitlements further. So they want to go after Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid. That's what they want to do. Literally at a time when these should be expanded. UBI is Social Security for all. At a time when we should expand it, and everybody's struggling, they're like, let's cut that. Do you see who they work for now? This is unconscionable. Again, I've never seen anything this brazen, and I've been following politics for a long time. But at a time when we have great depression-level unemployment, the economy is being totally destroyed, the people are being totally destroyed, food bank lines, which we'll cover later, are just preposterous, people are going hungry, they're talking about a capital gains tax cut. Unfathomable. And the Democrats, God bless them, they didn't draw any red lines early on in the first four bailout packages. And now I see a bunch of them like, you know, we should do hazard pay and UBI, shouldn't we? You could have drawn the line at the corporate, you could have drawn the line at the first bill. But definitely by the third or fourth, you could have said, no, we're not going to do a penny to corporations until people get bailed out first with universal basic income. You could have did that. You didn't do that. So now they gave away all of their leverage, all of it. And then they go virtue signal on Twitter like, you know, we really should do hazard pay and UBI. You could have drawn the line before and actually had a chance of getting it. Now, Trump doesn't care if they do another COVID bailout or not. He doesn't care. He's like, yeah, they said, oh, Congress, you know, we're, oh, talks with Congress broke down and we're not going to, you know, restart them until June. Are you kidding? So he doesn't care if they do another bailout. And he's saying, hey, if we do, he wants to do a payroll tax cut and a capital gains tax cut. And the Democrats just now are like, yes, maybe I would maybe like some, I would maybe like you to kind of, Give me my stapler back, and then maybe also, can I please have UBI or hazard pay? I would really appreciate that if you were to do that for me. And oh, you're not going to do that for me? Okay, I will go tweet about it and pretend like I'm fighting for it, even though I didn't when I had the opportunity to. 
it's so amazing that, <laughs> I mean, guys, we have so many distractions, but I'm actually looking at how everything's unfolding, and I'm like, I don't see how, when, this is, when the pandemic is over, I don't see how people don't go out in the streets and we have, like, Occupy Wall Street but on steroids. Because these decisions are so disgusting, and they're so obviously corrupt, and they're so ridiculous, and they're so detached from helping regular people that even in today's modern day and age with all the amazing distractions that we have, all of them, that might not be enough because people are going to be like, I, what do you, what do you, what do you think is going to happen? There's going to be a massive eviction crisis and foreclosure crisis and there's going to be the house of cards that is our economy is going to, you know, it's going to fall. And they're talking about a capital gains tax cut. I, it's just stunning, man. And I can't, I can't adequately describe to you how absurd this is and how much people are getting screwed. I don't have the words for it. I tried. I just don't have the words for it. This is a legendary in how much regular people are getting fleeced. Okay, next. This story is fascinating. It's rare, good journalism from CNN. So there's been a giant uptick of fraud as a direct result of the coronavirus. Watch and they give a bunch of examples. coronavirus was overwhelming hospitals, governors across the country were in a mad scramble to find supplies, and a lot of people were making a lot of money. I can't tell you how many orders we placed with vendors who were acting basically as brokers who just uh, uh, started businesses in the middle of this pandemic because they saw an opportunity. From New York to California to Louisiana. Hundreds of millions of dollars in ventilators, masks, and other personal protective equipment were ordered, but some of it never showed up. After stalled deals, the governors of both California and Maryland say they're looking into deals with Blue Flame Medical, a pop-up medical supply company started by two Republican operatives. Unfortunately, across the country, there have been some cases of fraud. Uh, It is unconscionable that anyone would try to exploit this pandemic for profit or for personal gain. An attorney speaking on behalf of Blue Flame told CNN the company fully intends to honor the contract for a million and a half masks and 110 ventilators to Maryland and says that the Chinese government interfered with its ability to fulfill the shipment. In Louisiana, at the height of New Orleans' pandemic crisis, $7 million of PPE supplies never showed the third-party supplier now being charged with defrauding the VA. Former federal prosecutor Ellie Honig says a crisis with billions of dollars being spent quickly is the perfect environment for wide-scale fraud. Anytime there's opportunity, anytime there's a pot of money, dishonest people will have their hands in it. Even in times of emergency, for some people there's just no bottom. Adding to the issue, the lack of federal leadership on supplies that force states to fend for themselves scouring the Internet, or relying upon unknown suppliers. Case in point, New York State. Competition among states 
There were competition among private entities to get this equipment. Uh, the federal government was trying to buy it. The one that's received the most attention is a deal for 1,400 ventilators from a Silicon Valley engineer. The state paid $69 million, but the ventilators never arrived. A spokesman from Governor Cuomo's office said HHS referred us directly, confirming they were vetted and approved by the federal government themselves. The engineer behind the failed deal did not return CNN's calls, and though most of the money has been returned, $10 million is still under negotiation. The nation, we can't go through this again. To fight fraud and better their bargaining position, New York and six other Northeast states have now joined together to stabilize the supply chain and combat the fraud that is also spreading like the virus itself. In an ideal world, you would have had the federal government stepping up earlier. Um, that's not happening, so governors are getting it done. The fact is the federal government and a group of volunteers organized by Jared Kushner were behind the referral for that failed New York ventilator deal. That's according to the New York Times. So it's not just about getting federal help. It's about getting experienced federal help. States say that's not happening, so they are going alone. Yeah, I mean, it's a crisis, and in a crisis, you have fraudsters that pop up, scam artists, crisis profiteers. I mean, that's what this is, and you see it for every crisis. Remember, I don't know if you guys have ever seen the documentary Iraq for Sale, The War Profiteers. I believe that's the name of it. And um, they describe how these private contractors, they would, like, sell the government these cans of Coke for the soldiers at our bases in the Middle East. And they would charge them, like, over 20 bucks per can because the taxpayer was paying and there was no accountability. And, and in that instance, that's even a little bit different because even though they're price gouging, at least the product's actually there. In this case, we're talking about legit like, hey, let me sell you whatever it is, ventilators, masks, whatever it might be, and then they just don't show up. What? And it, it's also, listen, I'm sure there are many instances of deals that were made where it was a legit company and they tried to fulfill it, but they couldn't. Like, I'm sure there were just some instances of, oh, we overestimated how much we would be able to deliver on this stuff. I'm sure there's some instances of that. But yeah, there are plenty of other instances of just outright fraud and scam artists. And they're just cashing in because they see whenever they sense the desperation and how much people need help, they're like, oh, I'll pounce, act like I have, you know, what they need. And then I don't. So it's really crazy, and honestly, what this shows is this is a case for good government, and it's a case against free market fundamentalism, because when you have the government is desperate, they're in need, instead of them leaping into action early on, when as soon as we learned about this pandemic, and firsthand, they had the ability to do this stuff, but instead of that, because that requires more work and more effort, they just lazily were like, okay, let me contract with private businesses that supposedly already do this. And it's like, well, some of them turned out to be totally fraudulent. And you got got now, didn't you? So this is, you know, market fundamentalism. This is something that happens when you deal with a system like that. And um, we'll cover a story later, but Trump... And the federal government had the ability to make millions of N95 masks early on, and they said no. 
so this really, this segment really is an argument for like good governance. You should have had way more ventilators, way more ventilators. You should have stockpiled those. You should have stockpiled the N95 masks. You should have done production on your own. And, uh, but they didn't do contracting with all these small companies. And it's much harder for, it's much harder for the state to like properly vet this stuff because the state, the states usually don't have the ability to do everything the federal government has the ability to do. So I don't know how easy it would have been for the state to like mass produce their own N95 masks or ventilators. It might be near impossible. Whereas the federal government does have that ability and they just didn't do it. So, you know, I guess you had in the case of Andrew Cuomo in New York, he had the state start making its own sanitizer, but they used prison labor for it, which is slavery. So he, they used slavery to make hand sanitizer. Anyway, I digress from that. Point is, um, yeah, you're going to have fraudsters pop up, scam artists, crisis profiteers, uh, unless you have systems of government set up to handle these crises in the first place. And unfortunately, when you have people in charge who don't believe in good government, you have people running the government who are market fundamentalists, then it's like, okay, well, now you reap what you sow, and the chickens come home to roost, and some other saying that you all know, fill in the blank. (laughs) That's what happens, and it's sad, and it's depressing. And uh, unfortunately, it was predictable as well, but... In the heat of the moment when everybody needed help, they just acted first and thought about it later. Okay, next. Where is the thing I need for this bitch? Damn it. Okay, I don't have the right graphic, so let me let me pull up an old one here because I messed up, y'all. I guess I'll just pull up the Trump picture because that's good enough for this story. Me missing a graphic. Very rare. But we will be talking about the new Cold War. So Trump and the Republicans are currently escalating what honestly appears like a new Cold War that's shaping up with China. So this is uh, certainly not positive. Jeff Stein says, breaking U.S. officials crafting plans to punish or demand compensation from China over virus as Trump fumes in private over pandemic. Officials discussing stripping China of sovereign immunity so people can sue or avoiding U.S. debt obligations to China. Now, since this, Trump actually has made a public statement sort of backing off the U.S. debt thing, because China has so much leverage over us. If they wanted to, they could just kind of destroy our economy in a, in a blink of an eye. Um, so he backed off of that. But there is still talk and action and proposed legislation on getting rid of what they're calling China's sovereign immunity so that people could sue. Now, what does that mean? Here's what that means. Um, You could have people in the U.S. who got COVID-19 who are like, I demand compensation for this, 
and you would be allowed to sue China, the government of China, in the United States, in our domestic courts. It's a, it's a waste of time. It's totally ridiculous. It's totally symbolic. There's no there there. They're, they just wouldn't abide by it. They're like, okay, you don't have jurisdiction. We're our own country. We're sovereign. So piss off. And so it accomplishes nothing, but it's actually worse than that because it inflames tensions. And it makes them much more likely to do a tit-for-tat type of response. Is that what we want? Is that what we want? That is apparently what the Republicans want. Now, why? Why? Because, again, I don't know how many times I've pointed this out on the show, but it's true. Because they're trying to save face from not handling this properly early on. Now, if you want to say, hey, man, this originated in China. China lied about it for an extended period of time before the truth came out. And so there's plenty of blame to be directed at them. I agree. I agree. They lied. They downplayed it and all that stuff, for sure. So did the United States. We did as well. Trump was in rallies talking about it and downplaying it and giving press conferences and saying, it's 15 people. It'll soon be down to zero in this country. And they just kept downplaying it and lying and downplaying it and lying. And then it spread. And then finally... Eventually, when they had to take it more seriously, they started taking it more seriously. Um, so, but for an election year, you want to be able, and this is what they're thinking. I don't know if they're saying it to themselves in private, but, like, you need a scapegoat. You need a scapegoat. I can't take the blame for everything that happened here and how the coronavirus, now over 80,000 people died, over, like, 1.2 million cases in the U.S. so far. I've got to own that? No. So what do I got to do? I got to point the finger at somebody. Up, pointed at China because they lied early on and it came from there. So it's reasonable enough to say, oh, blame them. And so that's why they're doing it. And, but now you're playing with fire. And it's really a shame to see that not everybody's, you know, onto why they're doing this and why this is so dangerous. You know, the willy-nilly pointing your finger at other countries and, and escalating with them. It's like, no. Now we all have a common enemy. The common enemy is the virus. We're all against the virus. We're all trying to, you know, succeed here. Yes, the Chinese government shouldn't have lied early on about it, but the U.S. government shouldn't have done it either. Let's stop pointing fingers. Let's be adults, and let's do good public policy to fix this. And they're not, which is why they're just stuck on that phase one thing of, I don't know, just blame them and talk about it nonstop. Uh, And even now legislation is propping up over it. Um, But my favorite is from Representative Jim Banks. He tweeted the following. My statement on tonight's vote on the supplemental coronavirus release package. And then he does an invoice for the United States of America billed to the People's Republic of China. And then he puts, you know, the amount of money for the COVID bailout packages. And this was from a a while ago. We've since had more packages. But um, invoice total, $2.81 trillion. So he's saying, I'm going to bill China for this money. And, uh, you know, they better pay up. And this stuff is having consequences, man. And we don't want to get into tit for tat. We don't want some sort of retaliation from them. Just so everybody understands, as much as we hate this fact, we're still dependent on them for our our supply lines. Now, if I was president, I would totally do more manufacturing here at home. And so we wouldn't be so dependent on them. But we are dependent on them. So why would you want to escalate tensions with a country that holds all your debt and that you're dependent on right now? Because they're idiots, and they would rather play politics to try to save face than address the reality of the situation. So, not good, man. Not good. And in the same way that, you know, I was doing my best to stand against the escalating tensions with Russia, 
when Democrats were saying it's the new Pearl Harbor that, you know, Russia intervened in our election. And I was calling out the BS that is Russiagate every step of the way. You know, now we got to be careful because the new um, scapegoat is China. And even though they made mistakes early on and they lied and they downplayed the virus, and you could absolutely talk about that, understand that actions have consequences. And when you scapegoat them nonstop and now you're proposing legislation about it, that only leads in one direction, and that direction is very bad, and that direction is not something I want to contemplate. So everybody chill the hell out or else we're going to be in serious trouble. Okay, next. Oh, now i got to go to Andrew Cuomo. Okay, I'm going to attack the chosen one, y'all. I'm going to attack the chosen one. <laughs> oh, terrible. Andrew Cuomo has been doing these uh, COVID-19 press conferences, and the media has been nutting all over themselves over these things because he appears to be so much more competent than Trump, so much more intelligent than Trump. He comes across like a serious leader in these press conferences. And I'll admit that. I've seen him. He comes across like a serious leader who's, you know, being intelligent, Uh, and how he's approaching this, and he's got a system in place, and he's got problem-solving happening. And so you look at it, and you go, wow, that looks presidential. Now, as a direct result of these press conferences being, you know, pumped out everywhere, his approval rating is now like 80%. And sometimes, in times of crisis, people fall in line behind their leaders. Um, You know, we saw with 9-11, Bush's approval rating was like 80 or 90% after 9-11. And now this is happening as well with COVID-19, and because Andrew Cuomo is out in front of everybody all the time doing these press conferences, it's a natural reaction. And so you look at it, and you're like, wow, wow. So he's, he's getting some amazing press. Well, Cuomo decided to take it a step further here and use his COVID-19 press conference um, on Mother's Day to do some warm and fuzzy propaganda uh, for himself, and he brought his mother onto the press conference through a Zoom call or a Skype call. And today is about love and showing love and expressing it and appreciation for our mothers. And my mother, who I cannot see today because I am in a position where I am exposed to too many people And if I go see my mother, Dr. Zucker, blame Dr. Zucker, the health commissioner says it would be risky for me to see my mother because I want to make sure that I don't infect her with anything. She's stronger than I am. She's smarter than I am. But I just want to make sure that we don't do that. But I get to say uh, happy Mother's Day to my mother. With my daughters, they're all here through one means or the other, whatever this is, Zoom this, Zoom that. Happy Mother's Day to you, Mom. I miss you. I love you so, so much. I wish I could be with you. 
but I can't be, but I can't be because I love you. That's why I can't be with you, because I love you. Just so everybody understands, the pandemic is still raging in New York. We still have a lot of people dying every single day. New York is by far and away the worst state in terms of how many deaths and how many cases. Like, all of, for all of his leadership and his COVID-19 press conferences, it's, the numbers are reflecting, you ain't doing a great job, dog. Now, listen, you could say, oh, well, it's because of the nature of New York and that New York City, everybody's on top of each other. It's, uh, there's so many people there and everybody's so jam-packed in the city that it's like, what are you going to do? you got all these apartment buildings. One person coughs in one hallway in an apartment building and all of a sudden you got 37 people that have the virus. So how much can you blame Cuomo for that? If you want to make that point, listen, it's a fine point. There's a reason why L.A. is you know, doing a lot better than New York City, L.A., everybody's more spread out. I mean, sure, there, there are mitigating factors. There are reasons. Probably weather might have something to do with it, too. It's harder for it to spread in hot weather than it is in cool weather. It can still spread in hot weather, but it's just harder for COVID to, to spread in hot weather. But anyway, listen, there's still a lot of work to do, bro. And he's out there talking to his mom on Mother's Day, doing a Zoom call, doing a Skype call, whatever it is, saying, you know, I love you. You're so wonderful. This is just rank propaganda. Now, if he was doing a decent job, maybe I'd say, okay, have your, you know, little cutesy fake moment here that you want to have for everybody. You want to know how you wish your mom a happy, happy Mother's Day? Give her an actual call. You know, don't, don't why are you trying to make it, the, the world must see that I love my mom because then that'll, then they'll like me even more. It's one of those things that gets under my skin. It's like too calculated and too, ugh. Like, it's so planned out. But anyway, um, the real reason I'm covering this is because, so he does this cutesy little thing with his mom, and everybody loves him now, and he's got an 80% approval rating, and he keeps doing these press conferences, and he appears to be a competent leader. Look at what's really going on behind the scenes. Andrew Cuomo uses budget to cut Medicaid and settle political scores. The New York governor's response to the COVID-19 pandemic has made him a star, but progressives say the new state budget shows his true colors. Guys, in the middle of a pandemic, he's cutting Medicaid. Get this, to the tune of, I read a couple different numbers, but it's between $6 billion and $9 billion. With him in office, you've had a bunch of hospitals shut down for good. You're cutting Medicaid in the middle of a pandemic and you're going to walk out there and act like you're a hero. You can do this cutesy little thing with your mom. Happy Mother's Day. I love you, mom. What about all the older moms who need health care and you cut it from them? What about them? Do they not count? Is it only your mom that counts? Oh, I hate politics so much. You have no idea. Uh. <laughs> oh, it's so gross. All it takes, it's kind of amazing. All it took for Andrew Cuomo to be viewed as this amazing leader who's competent and on top of it all. Yeah. All it took was, like, I don't know if he does it daily or I don't know how many times a week he does it, but it just, it's these recurring press conferences where he just makes it look like he's on top of it. That's it. That's all it took. 
I'm sure in some ways he's doing okay, but when you cut Medicaid in the middle of a pandemic, that kind of trumps any good you might do. No pun intended by saying the word Trump. (laughs) But that kind of trumps any good you might be doing, man. I mean, come on, this is pathetic. That's thing number one you don't do is cut Medicaid, cut funding to health care for poor people. It's obscene. It's absolutely obscene. But listen, there's a political lesson in this for everybody. And Trump knows this better than anybody else, which is why he was doing it for so long. The more you're out there in front of people, the more you're playing leader like Trump did and like Andrew Cuomo did, the more people go, I guess he's a leader. I guess he's doing okay. I guess because people are not, and this is why journalism is so important and investigative journalism is so important, is because you've got to uncover these frauds and you've got to show them for what they are. Like, no, here's what he really did. He's cutting Medicaid as he's pretending like he's a leader. When it comes to health care in New York, oh, please. It's like literally the exact thing he's not a leader for. So, you know, good marketing and good PR is a tough thing because it works. It works. And I have no, there's no doubt about it in my mind that now he's positioned himself if he wants to run for president in four years or eight years or whatever it is. Cuomo is trying to position himself to do that, and he's succeeding. Okay, next. Let's talk about the healthcare crisis around the entire country. Our healthcare crisis just had jet fuel poured on it as a result of COVID-19 and the economy imploding. So it's been massively exacerbated. Look at this. Because health insurance is tied to employment for about half the country, 160 million people, as many as 43 million are expected to lose their health insurance due to the pandemic, according to a new report by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation and the Urban Institute. Analysts project that 43 million Americans could lose their insurance when the unemployment rate hits 20%, according to the Department of Labor. The current unemployment rate is 14.7%. Some economists estimate that between 19 and 23.6% of Americans are actually out of a job, including those who lost their jobs in the last two weeks and those who have not filed for jobless claims. So, um, I mean, that says it all right there, doesn't it? That, and, and I don't think this includes the about 28 million people who didn't have health insurance before the pandemic hit. So add 43 to about 28. That's a lot of people who don't have health insurance. That's a lot of people who are screwed. And this is what the system is like now. Now compare this to what's going on in the rest of the developed world. In the rest of the developed world, healthcare is a right. Healthcare is, no, 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 what do you mean? That's funded with tax dollars. What, are you crazy? You get sick, you get help. That's the end of it. Like in John Q, remember the Denzel Washington movie, John Q, where he flips out, he's got his gun at the end. Sick, help, sick, help. That's what it's like in other developed countries. Here, no, it doesn't work like that here. There's got to be an unnecessary mafia middleman, the health insurance companies, 
It's got to be tied to your employment, which is a way for your employer to have leverage over you, which, by the way, keeps a lot of people in jobs they don't want to be in. They don't want to be in. But they have to. I need the health insurance, so they have to be. It's unbelievable. Form of indentured servitude. Our system is totally broken. Totally broken. What we need is Medicare for all, and we need it now. We absolutely need that. We need to copy the rest of the developed world. I don't care. Pick your country. Pick whatever developed country you want. We'd be better off with that healthcare system than we have here with ours. And there's different ways of doing a universal healthcare system. There's public funding of public institutions like the NHS in the UK. There's public funding of private institutions like France. But the connecting tissue is public funding. It's funded with tax dollars. Instead of our money goes all towards war and corporate bailouts, they do healthcare there. That crazy idea. Okay, so here's what corporate Democrats like Joe Kennedy, here's what he's saying as he runs for office in the middle of this pandemic and these facts are rolling in about millions of people losing their health insurance. Look at this. Not a single patient should be forced to fight off medical bankruptcy in the midst of a global health pandemic without a lawyer by their side. That tweet is too perfect. Somebody frame that and just put it as the perfect encapsulation and representation of the neoliberal corporate period of the Democratic Party. There was the FDR phase, the Social Democratic Democratic Party, and then obviously at post-Reagan, you really had the Democratic Party move to the right, welcome the corrupting big money, and then you have the Bill Clinton, Hillary Clinton, Barack Obama, Joe Biden, neoliberal period, right? This is the perfect encapsulation of that period. It's like, all right, I'm going to show you guys that we're better than the Republicans and we care. Not a single patient should be forced to fight off medical bankruptcy in the midst of a global health pandemic without a lawyer by their side. Needlessly complex, convoluted, complicated, whittled down. You want to know how that tweet would have been good? Here, ready? Not a single patient should be forced to fight off medical bankruptcy. Stop right there. <laughs> That's it. Not a single patient should be forced to fight off medical bankruptcy. That's it. That, that would be a wonderful tweet. I'd retweet it. I'd retweet it. Ah, see? That's right. Medicare for all. Let's go. Let's do it. Medical bankruptcy shouldn't exist. They don't exist in other countries. They don't exist. But instead, that was only half of it. And then he goes on. So you shouldn't, it's not that you shouldn't be forced to fight off medical bankruptcy. No. It's that you shouldn't be forced to fight it off in a pandemic. Oh, okay. So when it's not a pandemic, that's fine. When it's not a pandemic, yeah, go medically bankrupt. I don't care. If it's not a pandemic, yeah, that should exist. That concept should exist. But you shouldn't be forced to fight off medical bankruptcy in a pandemic, because then it'd be wrong if you had to fight it off in a pandemic. And actually, I want you to have to fight it off, but I will have a lawyer by your side. These people stand for nothing. See, this is what happens when you want to be a good person, but you prioritize your donors who are funding your campaign above just being a good person and doing the right thing. That's what this is. This is, oh, let me check where I'm getting my money from. Oh, look at that. I'm getting some money from Big Pharma. I'm getting some money from for-profit health insurance companies. You know, I'm getting money from Wall Street, whoever it might be, whoever these donors are, military industrial complex. So, oh, I want to be a good person, but it kind of gets in the way because I won't get the donor money the next time, which means I might not win, so i got to sell out. So, okay, how do I water this down? Me- 
Not a single patient should be forced to fight off medical bankruptcy in the midst of a global health pandemic without a lawyer by their side. Well, thank you, Joe. What an inspiring message. By the way, JFK, JFK, he was in favor of a universal health care system, and we covered it on this show. So I think it's safe to say he's rolling over in his grave right now. Okay, next. Let me do two more, and then we'll call it a day. Maybe three. We'll see. We'll see. There's a crisis in America which isn't getting nearly enough coverage, and it's this giant uptick in Americans who are going hungry. Going hungry. So you see, I have the... um, This is for the Great Depression, the food lines, and I got similar pictures from today now. This is seriously Great Depression level stuff. So I'm I'm, for everybody lit just listening to the show. This is it's on the screen. You're seeing a bunch of pictures of the lines at food banks, and it's unconscionable. I didn't. I didn't think I would see anything like this in my lifetime, but I'm seeing it. And what's concerning to me is the lack of coverage. Now, these pictures, Vox put these together. I have seen little pieces on it here and there, some nightly news, some local news has covered it. But really, I haven't seen the extensive coverage that it deserves. Like, to me, look at how much a fake scandal like Russiagate, look at how much coverage that got. And now compare that to the fact that Millions of people in the United States of America are going hungry, and it's not even getting one-tenth the coverage. It's not getting one-one-hundredth the coverage that something like Russiagate got. And this is why the media is failing miserably, and this is why they're terrible. So let me just give you – I mean, there are two facts here that just put everything in perspective. First of all, you've heard me say this one before, but about 78% of Americans are living paycheck to paycheck, and that was before – COVID-19, before this crisis, before the fact that 33 million Americans lost their jobs, lost their jobs, and the government only gave them a measly $1,200 one-time payment to only some of them. So what what did you expect was going to happen? When you had this crisis, everybody gets fired. A lot of people are taking pay cuts. 70% of Americans are living paycheck to paycheck. People don't have the savings to weather this storm. But here's the other scary fact. 38 million people were on food stamps, the SNAP program, before the crisis, before. Now, can you imagine what percentage of the country is food insecure now? If it was 38 million people who were food insecure beforehand, now with this crisis, guys, I mean, I honestly, is it like 100 million people? What is it, like 80 to 100 million people in this country are now food insecure? And meanwhile, there's what, 330 million or so in this country? So almost a third of the country might be food insecure now. Again, these lines are something I've never seen anything like this before in my life. Lines for food banks because people are going hungry in the modern era. This is at a time when you have, we just covered the story. Billionaires have made billions and billions of dollars in just It was like on May 8th or something like that. Just the other day, they made billions of dollars in one day as people go hungry in this country. 
Don't tell me we don't need to do massive redistribution of wealth. Don't tell me that we don't need to do UBI. Don't tell me that we don't need to do Medicare for all. Don't tell me that we don't need hazard pay for these frontline workers. Because what's happening right now is unconscionable. And there's no leadership. And yes, it's in the Republican Party and the Democratic Party. There's no real leadership that's fighting against this and winning. And it's a miserable thing to see. And it breaks my heart. But this is where we're at. So lines at food banks in 2020, it's beyond heartbreaking. Okay, now I am going to go to All right, so let me show you, honestly, this is a headline that it's so egregious that you can't believe it's real. Again, this is disgusting, but Mike Elk of Payday Report, and uh, he used to work for The Guardian and Politico. He's a, he's a reporter, and look what he found out. Striking garbage workers in New Orleans making $10.25 an hour were fired this week. Now they're being replaced with prison labor. Prison labor. So um, one of the protesters, the, one of the garbage, garbage men who's leading the strike, said the following. $10.25 to pick up trash. Come on now. It's contaminated with coronavirus. So what they're asking for is protection, and they're asking for hazard pay which is only like super duper reasonable and coronavirus bill number one should have had hazard pay in it. And it didn't, and it doesn't. And now we're on the fourth or fifth or whatever the hell we're at now. And we still don't have hazard pay. Some companies are voluntarily doing it, but it's very few, very few. We need a law on this front. So garbage men, dangerous job in this day and age with what's going on, $10 and 25 cents an hour. Hey, raise our pay a little bit and give us some protection and we're good money. Nope. Nope. Brought in prison labor. Guys, I got, I, I hate to be so blunt with everybody, but there's another way to describe that. They brought in slaves. They brought in people who don't have a say in whether or not they get to do this. They're told you're going to do this. Kanye was right. We got to abolish the, the slave labor system that we still have in prisons. I mean, look at this. Why, I mean, why wouldn't you be able to just bring them in when anybody strikes, whoever it might be, you know, whatever, Whole Foods workers, Amazon workers, they're striking too. Why can't, yeah, uh, bring in the slaves slash indentured servants to work for next to nothing. And by the way, who's to say they won't just continue having these people and screwing the workers now because they probably don't pay them anything because they don't have to, I don't think. Or maybe the tiniest amount, maybe way less than $10 an hour probably. But look at, look at this. This is where we're at in the years 2020 still. And you wonder why we need, you know, organized labor. You wonder why we need to um, 
I'm avoiding the word revolution, but now I'm leaning in that direction. You're going to bring in slaves to replace workers? We shouldn't even have slaves. Slaves in 2020. (laughs) Eliminate the prison labor. This is insanity. How is that not already done? And how is it okay to just casually replace workers with slaves? This is how little we value workers? Devastating. We need organized labor. We need stronger labor laws. We need universal basic income. We need hazard pay for the duration of this crisis. I mean, this stuff is obvious, man. By the way, nobody else is covering this. Nobody. Nobody else is covering this. Mainstream media, they're not going to touch this story. What an amazing story. This is wild. This is happening in 2020. And the final thing that I want to point out here, and again, credit to Mike Elk for tracking this. You ready for this? Since March 1st, in the U.S., You know how many COVID-19-related strikes there have been where working people are like, listen, we need protection, we need hazard pay, you got to work with us here. You know how many there have been? 191 strikes since March 1st in this country. 191 strikes, 191 different attempts of workers, respectively, around the country going, hey, bro, we need, listen, we need protective gear and we need some more pay. It's a pandemic. You want to go out there and maybe die? For this job, are you serious? More pay and protection. 191 strikes. 191. How many of those have you heard about on CNN or MSNBC or Fox News? Probably none of them. Maybe one or two. Then meanwhile, a right-winger farts, and it's like, oh, let's cover this for three weeks. I'm, of course, referring to you know, when they all went into the Michigan state capitol with guns. And I said, hey, man, listen, if that's what it takes to get eyeballs on the protests, okay, then have some left-wingers show up to a state capitol or two with guns. Don't use them. I believe in nonviolence to my core. I believe in nonviolence to my core. Never use them. But if it just takes holding them and showing up to get the squeaky wheel gets the grease, right? So, okay, then we'll make some more noise. Here, see, now we're protesting for labor rights, and we're packing heat. How you like them apples? Hey, if that's what's needed, so be it. But 191 protests, basically none of them covered. These are workers' protests, so demanding to be treated fairly, so they lean left. Almost no covers. Because it's not sexy to ask for health care and protective gear and higher wages. But it is sexy when you say, open everything up so we can all die quicker, and uh, here, now I got guns and I'm wearing an American flag shirt. For whatever reason, the media loves that stuff. They don't like the left-wing protests. But this is where we're at, man. Slaves are replacing garbage workers, and everybody yawns. This is unconscionable. All right, we're out of time, guys. We're out of show. I love you, baby. I'll talk to you soon. Much love. Peace.